Thank you, Paul. Thanks, uh, the band, for leading us in worship and uh, just reminding us what God has done, what God, who God is, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, and just our amazing, awesome salvation that is, is, is freely available to us through the Lord Jesus. It's fantastic, isn't it? Now, I wonder how you would react this morning if the Queen walked into this room, or Barack Obama, maybe, or, or, or Steve McLaren after his uh, fantastic win yesterday, those of us who were there to watch Steve McLaren win at, um, it wasn't him who won, but led the team that won. I wonder how you would react if people like that walked into the room, or maybe even your boss at work. That might provoke a different reaction, I don't know. Certain people that we interact with in life produce different reactions into, in us, don't they? And significant people produce significant reactions in us. Sometimes that, that might mean that we submit to them if it's our boss, or, or, or we praise them if it's Steve McLaren or, or, a, or a sports person, or we, or we listen to them, or we model our lives on them, perhaps to some extent, or we tell other people about them. At work, when the boss walks in, it will produce a reaction. It? it usually means that people stop talking and they kind of focus and they work a little bit harder. If a famous sports person, maybe from the team that you support, came in this morning, maybe you would want their autograph or you might want to see them displaying their, their sports-like skills. If the head teacher walks into your classroom at school, usually that will mean that you kind of get your head down and uh, the atmosphere changes a little bit. And especially if you're a teacher like Mr. Stewart, you, you make sure that you're teaching the class well um, as the head teacher walks in. If you met your favorite celebrity, you might want to photograph with them a selfie. If, if Taylor Swift walked in here, Ryan would probably faint. I, I don't, uh. Certain people produce different reactions in us depending on who they are. And usually the kind of reaction that we have to people depends on their identity, doesn't it? Depends on the person's identity. Some people we take a lot of notice of and we would respond significantly to them. Other people we might not even notice or we might ignore, we might walk past. We, we take little or no notice of them. And that really all depends on who they are and what their identity is. Now we've come together this morning to meet not only with each other, but also to meet with and encounter Jesus. We've sung already, haven't we? We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. We, we welcome you, Jesus. And we've come this morning to meet with each other. That's part of what church is about, to encourage each other, to keep on living for Jesus. But we've also come together this morning to meet with and to encounter the Lord Jesus. We believe, don't we, as Christians, that the Bible teaches that Jesus isn't here in physical form, of course, but that he is here by the power and the presence and the person of his Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, where two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So Jesus is here, we believe. And if Jesus is here today, then how will I react to him? Now, how we react to Jesus should, of course, depend on who he is. It will depend on his identity. So who is Jesus? What is Jesus' identity? And, and does Jesus' identity, or what does Jesus' identity mean to you? What does it mean to me? How should we react to who Jesus is and to what he has done? What should be the response, what should be the reaction in us as we come this morning to encounter him through, as we read the Bible together, as we encounter him in worship and in the lives of one another? Now, at the moment, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. Who has managed to read uh, all seven days this week? Anybody? Yeah, fantastic. Well done. There's some, uh, some shy people, I'm sure. I'm sure most of you have. You're just too embarrassed to say. Maybe six days or five days or four days. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Just keep going. Even if you've read it one more time this week, that's one more time probably than you would have read it. And it's great. I know 
conversations and emails and texts I've been having, people have, yeah, I've seen this verse, that's fantastic, that's spoken to me. You know, I'd really encourage you to do that. When you're reading the Scriptures in your personal daily readings or, or reading Colossians, and if you find a verse that excites you or blesses you or encourages you, share that with somebody else. That's really encouraging. And when we get together, that we've got something more to talk about than just football or the weather or whatever, come and tell each other how God has blessed you as we read the Bible uh, in our personal daily lives. Now, as I say, at the moment, we're working our way through a book of the Bible called Colossians. It was actually a letter written by Paul. The Apostle Paul was one of the key leaders of the church in the New Testament period. And he wrote this letter to a church um, in a city called Colossi. Colossi was in what is now modern-day Turkey. And Paul was in prison in about AD 61. And he wrote this letter to the church there, to the Christians in the church there, whilst in prison for telling people about Jesus. And one of the reasons he wrote the letter was to reassure the people in Colossae that Jesus was all they needed. That because they'd become followers of Jesus, because they'd become Christians, they didn't need to look to anything else. They didn't need to look to any other belief system or any other thing in life. Jesus was all sufficient. It seems as we work our way through the letter, it's not, it's not exactly explicit, but it seems as though people had been coming into the church and teaching things that weren't biblical, things that weren't right. And some of these false teachers were saying that in as well as, or in addition to trusting in Jesus, that the folks there, the Christians there, had to trust in other things or had to add things to their simple faith in Jesus, perhaps by observing bits of the Jewish law or by worshipping angels as well as worshipping Jesus um, or by uh, looking to, to, to additional things, to mystical experiences beyond their simple faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul is writing to them partly to reassure them that Jesus is all they need, and to tell them that Jesus is the only one that they should give their lives to and worship. And in today's passage, he presents some amazing facts about who Jesus is, and his aim is simple. If the people in Colossae, and not only the people in Colossae, but because every word of the Bible we believe was inspired and given by the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just intended for those people 2,000 years ago in that city in Turkey, it was also intended for us today and everybody around the world today. It's part of God's way of communicating with, with people through, his, through the Bible, through his written word. His aim is simple. If the people in Colossae and if we, as we read it today, understand who Jesus is and then we respond and react by trusting Jesus and only worshipping Jesus. Once we realise who Jesus is, the only logical, rational response to that, to that information about his identity is to worship him, is to give our lives to him utterly, completely. And that's Paul's purpose, partly his purpose in writing this letter and especially the passage that we're looking at today. So let's read today's passage which is Colossians 1 and we're reading verses 15 to 20 but we'll read from verse 13 just to give a little bit of context which is what we were looking at last week. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 13. If you haven't got a Bible that's fine, you can just listen as I read it to you. So Paul is in a prison cell in Rome for telling people about Jesus. He's writing to this church in Colossae and he says these words as, as we kind of break into the middle of this letter. For he, that's Jesus, or, or God, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's an amazing passage, and it's a phenomenal passage, one of the, probably the most important passages, arguably, in the New Testament, or certainly up there uh, amongst the kind of half a dozen or so. Paul is really writing this section for two reasons. Firstly, he's teaching both the original readers and us today as we read it um, some key truths about Jesus' identity. And secondly, he's, he's trying to provoke a response to the information he's giving us about Jesus. So what does this passage tell us about Jesus' identity? What does it tell us about Jesus' identity? Well, it doesn't tell us everything about Jesus. In fact, were every book in the world to be written, it wouldn't be able to contain everything about Jesus because he is so phenomenal and amazing. And the Bible is full of many other facts and bits of information about who the Lord Jesus is. But it does tell us some really significant truths about Jesus, some key truths that it's really important that we try and grasp and understand and then respond to. Now, I've listed on your outline seven facts, seven facts that this passage teaches us. If you've got an outline where you should have on your seat, the bulletin's on the front, turn it over, the outline's on the other side. I really encourage you to, to use this, uh, fill the things in when you write things down. It sticks in your head more than it does if you just hear. But if they get in your way, that's fine, just ignore them. But if you pick your outline up, the verses are there on the outline and will be up on the screen for you. The first fact that we see in this passage is that Jesus, if you write this in, Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% God. The Bible teaches us that there's one God, this is a little bit difficult to get our heads around, that there's one God, but that he is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Difficult to get our heads around, but it's true all the same, and it's what the Bible presents to us about God. One God, yet three persons, equal and yet distinct. God is also invisible. He is spirit. But in becoming a man, God the Son became fully human so that the world could really encounter God and really see what God is like. In becoming a man, God becomes one of us, just like us in every way. So that as we, as we see Jesus, as we encounter Jesus, whether that was person to person in the time when he was alive or through the Bible, as we look at him and as we study about him today, we see God in human form. Verse 15 says, Talking about God the Son, says He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. As a human being, Jesus, God's Son, was the way in which God revealed Himself to humanity. We're not talking about what Jesus physically looked like. We don't know what Jesus looked like, and that's probably helpful, so we don't try and worship a picture of Him or anything like that. We're not told what Jesus looked like, and Jesus, as a human being, didn't resemble God physically because God is spirit. But we're talking about his character, his behavior, the things he said, he did, his, his standards, the, the way he lived and so on. He was the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. So if somebody encountered Jesus, they were encountering God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I only do the things the Father tells me to do, says Jesus. And the people who encountered Jesus were encountering God. John Piper, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers, says when, when, when Jesus coughed, it was God coughing. This was God in the flesh, come as a real human being. 
the exact representation of the invisible God. And everything we see in Jesus is God. Is God's standards, God's ways of behaving. So as we want to know, if we want to know what God looks like, then we look at Jesus. That is what God is like. If we're not sure, well, is God like this or like that? We look at Jesus, and as we see him revealed to us in the Bible, particularly in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those accounts of Jesus' life, we see God revealed to us, living in the flesh. And verse 19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness, not some of his fullness, not some of who he was, but all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus wasn't 50% God or 50% man. Jesus wasn't pretending to be God. He wasn't a God. He wasn't partly God. All the fullness of God, Paul says here, was in the man that we call Jesus. Jesus was 100% God. And you know, heresies usually start around two things. It's around who Jesus is and how we get to heaven. And that's where every heresy, wrong teaching starts. It's around who Jesus is and around how we get to heaven. And Paul is really clear here that, that the, the, the man that we see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was 100% God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. The second thing we discover is that Jesus is pre-existent and eternally God. Jesus is pre-existent and he is eternally God. That, that's a little bit difficult to get our heads around. So what do we mean by that? Well, Jesus as a human being came into existence at his conception. Jesus, if I can put this reverently, Jesus as a human being came into existence at his conception. But Jesus the human being was God the Son who had come into this world and who had become a human being, had taken on humanity upon himself. But God the Son has always existed because God has always existed. God is eternal. He's outside of time. He's, he's beyond time. He doesn't have a beginning and an end. And he created time. So because Jesus is God and because God is eternal and is beyond and outside of time, Jesus, the man that we see, although he had a physical beginning as a human being, because that human being is 100% God the Son, Jesus is pre-existent. He is eternal. He just always has existed. And Jesus didn't become God at some point in his life. Again, some false teachings teach that Jesus became God at some point in his human life. That's not true. Jesus was God 100% from the moment he was conceived. He never ceased to be anything less than God at any moment through his life. He was always was and always will be 100% God. Verse 17 says that he is before all things. Before anything existed, God the Son existed. And verse 16 says, all things have been created by him and for him. So before the universe existed, God the Son as part of God Father, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God was there. He just always has been. Difficult to understand, I know, but that is what the Bible presents and what Jesus teaches. Jesus is pre-existent. He existed before he became a human being, before he took on human form, because he was and is God. And God is eternal, so God the Son is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He just always has ex existed and always will exist. He simply is. He just is. The third thing we discover is that Jesus created all things. Jesus created all things. The world didn't come into being by a big bang. The world didn't come into being by some freak accident. The Bible is very clear that Jesus, God the Son, was the member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He, was the God, he, he is God and he was the one who created the whole universe. Long before God the Son became a human being and took upon himself the human form of the main 
uh, of the man Jesus, it was, it was God the Son who spoke and the world came into being. He spoke and it all came into being, just like that. Verse 16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Whether it's up in space, whether it's down here on earth, whether it's something visible that we can see or something invisible. God the Son created everything. And Paul here alludes to four levels of spiritual powers. He talks about these spiritual powers that exist that we can't see, that we know uh, and we experience from time to time. He talks about thrones, powers, rulers and authorities. And these are four levels of spiritual beings that we can't, ex- that we can't see. And amongst them are the different levels of angels. And of course, amongst that are the angels who fell along with Satan and the angels who still uh, are God's servants, God's messengers. So we have these spiritual beings that were also created by God, by God the Son, by the Lord Jesus. Now remember, some people have been teaching, if you were here last week, some people have been infiltrating the church and teaching that the Christians at Colossae needed to worship angels, or, or at least they should worship angels alongside Jesus. And Paul is partly, partly what he's doing here by teaching about Jesus' identity and saying that actually it's Jesus who created all these spiritual powers, including the angels, Paul is trying to get across the point that, look, the angels are part of these unseen spiritual powers that God the Son has created. So Paul is saying, don't worship the angels because the angels are created. Worship the Creator. How foolish to worship something that's created. Worship the one who created them. And of course, Paul in Romans chapter 1, his great kind of defense of what the gospel is, of the Christian faith, he says, mankind as a whole has rejected the Creator and instead of worshiping the Creator, Mankind now worships created things, idols. And even if people don't worship physical idols, which many billions of people do around the world, we still worship other things, don't we? Money, sex, power, and so on. Things that we put in God's place. And Paul is saying, look, don't worship created things, worship the Creator. The fourth thing we discover is that Jesus is in control of the universe. Jesus is in control of the universe. Not only did he create it, but he continues to hold it all together. The universe owes its continuing coherence to God the Son. Without him, electrons wouldn't continue to circle. Nuclear gravity would cease to work, that the planets wouldn't hold in their orbits. Verse 17 says, And in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who is sustaining everything. He's at the right hand of God the Father, and the Bible teaches here that he continues to hold this whole universe together in his hand. It's Jesus who created all the laws of the universe, the physical laws. The fifth thing we discover is that Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is number one. He's the most important person in the whole universe. Verse 15 says that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now that doesn't mean that he was the first to be born or that at some point in the past he didn't exist. Jesus is God and therefore he's always existed. What it means is that he is the preeminent one. The firstborn was a title used in Bible times. Sometimes it's used to describe the person firstborn in a family, but it's a title that's given to mean the preeminent one. God, for instance, refers to David as his firstborn. Now, David wasn't the first to be born in his family. He also talks about the nation of Israel being the firstborn, and Israel wasn't the first nation. It's a title that is to do in the Bible with preeminence with the first place, the, the place of priority being given to someone. And so Paul is saying here that, is that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the preeminent one, the number one, the superior one, the prominent one, the preeminent one. And Paul is saying that because Jesus is God come as a human being, 
Therefore, he is the most important human to have ever existed and ever will exist. He's the preeminent one over creation. He's the only man that was ever been God. And he's the only one that will continue. He's the only man that will continue to be God right through uh, in, in, into eternity. So he's the preeminent one over his creation. The sixth thing we discover is that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is, isn't a building. We often talk about a, you know, that church over there or this church over there. Church just simply means assembly of people, congregation, gathering of people. And it simply means that all those throughout history who've trusted in Jesus, God's gathered people wherever they might be around the world. We have the universal church, which is all of those people throughout history who've trusted in Jesus, and local churches like this one, people gathered together to Jesus uh, week by week. And the church exists solely because Jesus died for those who are part of the church. It, it belongs to him. Jesus has created the church by dying. He has purchased the church with his own blood by dying on the cross. It, it, it's his. We belong to Jesus. This church is his uh, possession. The church universal is Jesus' possession. It doesn't belong to an organization. It doesn't belong to a person. The church belongs to Jesus. As it says up there on the wall, Jesus Christ is Lord, not a person, not an organization or institution. Jesus is Lord. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. The Bible uses this picture sometimes uh, of the human body as a, as a kind of picture to help us to understand what the church is like. And Jesus is the head or described as being the head of the body. Just as a human head is the focal point and the controlling point of a, of a physical body, when you look at a person, you normally look at their head, don't you? That's where your, your eyes normally go to. That's where you engage with. And the, and the Bible is using this picture of Jesus as the head, the kind of focal point, the preeminent point, the, the one that rules over the rest of the body and the rest of us come together to make up this organism, this, this great uh, gathering of people described here as a body. And so, you know, when we serve and when we do things in our local church, we're doing it for Jesus, aren't we? It's phenomenal this morning um, when, when you walk in through church or you're walking through the doors on a Sunday morning and there's uh, someone on the door to greet you, then there's two or three folks doing coffee, there's five or six folks here playing in the band, there's folks out the back doing Sunday school, uh, somebody's been down during the week and cleaned and the toilets are nice and the place is hoovered and there's all sorts of things going on all the time. That's because loads of people are serving. And we are serving one another, but primarily when we do those things, we're actually serving Jesus because we're serving the church and the, ch the church belongs to Jesus. And sometimes we might get a little bit down and think, oh, you know, I could really do without uh, doing this at church or I'd really rather not be on this rotor or that or whatever else. But, you know, what, what a phenomenal privilege to be on a rotor because when we're on a rotor, we're serving Jesus because it's his church, he's the head. And so when we come together, sometimes, yeah, it can be a chore, but we're serving one another and we get to serve Jesus. We're doing this stuff for Jesus. We're, we're cleaning car parks for Jesus. We're cleaning toilets for Jesus. We're making coffee for Jesus. We're greeting people for Jesus. We're playing instruments for Jesus. We're doing all these different things for his glory because he owns the church and we are part of his church. What a phenomenal privilege to be able to serve the, the preeminent one, the firstborn, the head of the church. The seventh and last thing we discover is that Jesus is the first and head of a new race of people. Jesus is the first and the head of a new race of people. Now, Jesus died and Jesus rose again. The Bible says that Christ has died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. 
He was the first person in history to die and to rise again and never die again. Jesus raised people back to life, but they died again in the future. Lazarus and, and certain others, Jairus' daughter and so on. But Jesus is the first person to rise from the dead, conquer death and never die again. The Bible says after being alive for about 40 days after he had risen from the dead, he went back up to heaven. And as the disciples watched him go and ascend into heaven, the angels appeared and said, this same Jesus that you have seen ascend in this way will come back and he will come back to this world. And so all those who trust in Jesus and surrender their lives to him, when they die, the Bible says, will rise again. Death is not the end for anybody. And for those who trusted in Jesus, death is a stage that we go through as we go to be with Jesus forever, as our spirits go to be with Jesus, our bodies may go into the ground. The Bible says as Jesus returns, our bodies will be raised up and we will be raised back to life physically, not just spiritually. And those of us who are still alive, if Jesus was to return right now, those of us who are still alive, and most of you look reasonably alive just about this morning, touch or go, those of us who are still alive will be caught up together and we too will be changed into the likeness of Jesus. And as a human being that died and rose again, Jesus was the first to do this, to have this new glorified body, the first of a whole new race of people who will never die again. And so he's the firstborn, he's the preeminent one, the head of this new race of people. A race of people who no longer need to fear death because they've placed their faith and their trust in Jesus in this life and have been given eternal life, life that goes on forever. So here we have seven facts about Jesus' identity. Seven different facts that tell us about Jesus. It's not the whole picture about Jesus by any means. Seven facts that Paul, in his wisdom, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has put and placed in this letter to the church in Colossae. Jesus is pre-existent. He has always existed because he is God and he is eternal. Jesus created all things and he continues to hold the universe together. He's the preeminent one. He's the most important human being that has ever lived. Why? Because he was and is God. Jesus is the head of the church. The whole reason the church exists is because of Jesus. And because Jesus died and rose again, he's the first and head of a whole new race of people who will never die again. Wow! What a phenomenal, amazing identity. That's a bit better than, with all due respect, Steve McLaren or, or even the Queen or you know, anybody else or even Taylor Swift. That's significantly more impressive, isn't it, than any human being who has ever lived, no matter how great they may be or have been, no matter how much of an impact they've made on this world or culture or history, people like Martin Luther King or William Wilberforce or some great phenomenal people, but they pale into insignificance when we compare them to who Jesus is. So who is this Jesus? And if this is who Jesus is, if this is Jesus' identity, then what does that mean for you and me today? We respond to people based upon their identity. If the Queen was to walk in here today, most, maybe not all of you, but most of us would in some way show some kind of deference or reverence to somebody who we think of as special and, and, and important in our nation. Maybe for you it would be different people, I don't know. But we all in some way would show some response to key people, significant people. Jesus is here today, the Bible teaches, by the power of his Spirit. And so knowing what we know about Jesus, how should we respond to who Jesus is and respond to what he's done for us. What does who he is mean to us? What are the implications of Jesus' identity? What does Jesus' identity mean for us here today, this morning? Well, as well as understanding who Jesus is, we also need to understand what Jesus has done. Paul fantastically gave us that illustration and read from the scriptures about what Jesus has done for us. 
and a different Paul, not the Apostle, the Apostle Paul in the Bible, not Paul over the back, writes these words in verses 19 and 20. He says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus that is, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God became a man. And through that man, through Jesus, he made it possible for you and me to be reconciled, to be brought back into relationship with God. The Bible teaches us that because of the wrong things that we think, the wrong things that we say, the things that we look at, the things that we do, our attitudes, our behaviors, all of those wrong things that we do, the Bible calls them sins, because of those things, we're separated from God. If we want to know if we're a sinner or not, we just look at the Ten Commandments. Do we, do we put God first in everything? No, we don't. None of us do. And so we've all fallen short, the Bible says, of God's standard. In fact, in the, in the passage we'll look at next week, we'll see that because of our sins, Paul says we're viewed as enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Enemies of God. Now, being an enemy of God is a, is a terrible place to be in. It's a terribly frightening position to be in. And God is holy. And God is a God of justice. And so God has to deal with our sins. All of that rubbish, all of that failure and filth and mess-ups and screw-ups and all of those things that fill our lives. And God has to punish that and deal with it. But you know, because Jesus loves you and me so much, loves us with a passion, He came to this earth in the person of Jesus. God the Son became a human being. He had to become fully human so that he could represent us, be representative of humanity. He lived a perfect life so that there was a, a perfect human able to represent the rest of humanity. And there on the cross, the Bible says he was put on the cross by men, but he went there willingly. And whilst on the cross, God the Father poured out all the wrath of a holy God upon his one and only Son, upon himself effectively. And all of the things that you've done, that I've done, all those wrong things, all those mess-ups, all those things that we're ashamed of that we wouldn't really want anyone else to know about, Jesus took all that upon himself there on the cross. The Bible says, and we sang it in one of the songs, he became sin. Jesus never became a sinner. He was perfect. But he became the very thing that separates us from God. He became our sins. Imagine the awful pain of, for Jesus of becoming the very thing that he hated the most. Imagine the worst sin that you can think of. The, the, perhaps the, the things that in, even in our society today we still don't tolerate. The very worst, the very lowest of the low things that happen in this world. Jesus, and, and imagine having to become that kind of person for a day. You think, oh, that's, that's horrendous. Jesus became your sin. He became my sin on the cross. And then he absorbed all of the wrath of a holy God and having dealt with that, he cried, it is finished. And we sang that in one of the songs. And Jesus had paid the price. He had done it. It was all done. And because our sins have been punished and dealt with, the problem can be removed. Paul says through Jesus, God has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him so that we're no longer his enemies, but instead we can be his friends, we can be adopted as his children, we can be forgiven, we can be given eternal life, and it's all through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. The, the expression shed blood of Jesus is a, is a shorthand way the Bible uses to refer to Jesus' sacrificial death, Jesus dying in our place. So whenever we hear about the, the, the blood of, of Christ, it, it's an expression which simply means the, the, the substitutionary death of Jesus, Jesus dying in our place there on the cross. 
And so if, if God has become a human being in the person of Jesus, and if he's died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins and mine, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you this morning? How should we react and respond to who Jesus is and to what he's done? Well, write this down. If you want to be reconciled to God, you need to trust in Jesus and surrender your life to him. If you want to be reconciled to God, if you no longer want to be an enemy of God, and who would want to be God's enemy? A holy, righteous, all-powerful God. Who would want to be God's enemy? Nobody, surely. Then we can be reconciled, removed from that terrible position and brought into a position of friendship and relationship and uh, sonship with God through Jesus. But we need to surrender to Jesus. We need to make him the Lord of our life. We need to trust in him. We need to thank him for what he's done there on the cross for us. You know, Jesus has paid the ultimate price for you so that your sins can be forgiven and removed and so that you can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. But to have and receive these things, you need to give your life to Jesus, to trust in him and what he's done for you and turn away from your old way of living. The Bible calls it repentance, to, to think differently about the way you used to live, to turn away from that and to follow Jesus. And if you've never done that before, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and made him Lord of your life and trusted in what he did for you on the cross, can I challenge you to do that this morning? To respond to who Jesus is, to his identity, and to what he's done for you by placing your faith and your trust in him and giving your life to him. You know, going to church doesn't do it. Reading the Bible doesn't do it. You can read Colossians till you're blue in the face. That won't do it for you. You need to trust in Jesus. There needs to be a step that you take. And if that's something that you would like to explore further, then do come and please come and talk to me afterwards. We have a great course up here. It's advertised, Christianity Explored. You don't have to do this to become a Christian, but it's a great way of exploring who Jesus is. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going when I die? And who Jesus is and, and how we get right with God. And if you want to do that, come and chat with me afterwards. Many of us here today have done just that at some point in our lives. So, so what does Jesus' identity mean for us then? Well, look again at verse 16. All things have been created by him and for him. Not only has Jesus created everything, everything was created for him. You and I were not only created by God the Son, but we were created for him. The reason you exist, the reason I exist, is to bring God glory. Now we think that we're at the centre of the universe and God revolves around us. God exists for our pleasure. That's an unbiblical worldview. A biblical worldview is God is at the center, the preeminent one, the supreme one, God the Son, and we exist for his glory. We exist to bring him pleasure and glory. The reason you and I exist is for God's glory. We exist not for our pleasure, but for God's pleasure. But bringing God pleasure, sometimes we think, you know, it's all about serving and it's hard work and it's, it's hard and it's difficult and it's, and it's rules and regulations. It's not at all. Bringing God pleasure is not a pleasure-less experience, or it shouldn't be. If it's pleasure-less, then you've never understood God's grace. If, if the Christian faith for you is trudgery and, and legalism and rules and regulations and, and chores, then you've never understood God's grace. Because the Christian faith is, is joyfully responding to God's amazing grace. John Piper says, The chief aim of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever by enjoying God forever. We will be most happy in life. We will receive the most pleasure in life when we are enjoying God. And we put God at the center of our lives and focus on living for him and bringing him glory and pleasure. And when we enjoy and, and revel in all that God is and all that he's done for us, 
then we will be at our most happy because that's what we were designed to do and it will bring God glory. And any time we're not living in that, that central place of, of bringing God pleasure by enjoying Him, then we're out of whack with what God has created us to do. And life will never be right. It will never make sense. It will never function as it should until we're in that place. Paul says in verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. It is all that Jesus, God the Son, might have the supremacy in this world in our lives. The rightful place of Jesus in your life and my life is to be supreme, is to have the supremacy, is to be number one. The only biblical, the only logical response and reaction to who Jesus is and to what he's done for us is, write this down, to give Jesus the central place in our lives so that he has the supremacy. This is all for his supremacy. It is all for his glory. Everything is for God's glory. And the only logical response is to take those steps to say, right, I'm going to give Jesus the central place in my life. He is going to be supreme. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, and he demands supremacy in our lives. Sadly, it is all too often true that although we may have trusted in Jesus at some point in our life and have been forgiven and received eternal life, you know, we, we wander, don't we, on a daily basis. We, we get pulled astray, we get pulled aside, and instead of staying focused with Jesus supreme and central, we, get kind of, we kind of wander astray and other things take our attention. Other things vie for that central place in our life. I wonder, is Jesus supreme in your life today? Does Jesus have that central place in your life? Is Jesus central in your work life? Is, is Jesus supreme at work? Are you working for your boss as if you were working for Jesus? That's what Paul teaches later on in Colossians. That we work for our boss as if we're working for Jesus. Is Jesus central and supreme in your relationships with other people? If you're married, is Jesus central in your married in, in your marriage? Is Jesus supreme in your marriage? With husbands sacrificially loving their wives like Jesus loved the church. That's an amazingly tall order for, for those of us who are married. To love our wives in the same way as Jesus did by dying on the cross for them. And with wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Jesus. That's to have Jesus central in a marriage. Is Jesus central in your sex life? So that the only sexual activity of any kind that you engage in is within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. One man and one woman for life. Is Jesus central? Is he supreme in your finances? Do you sacrificially give a significant amount of your income to Jesus? You may do that through a church or through a mission organization. That's kind of secondary. But do you give sacrificially, significantly of your income to Jesus, the one who gave it all for you? Is Jesus central? Is Jesus supreme in your home? As guests come to your house, can they tell that this is a home where Jesus is Lord? By the conversations, by what's on TV, by how they experience life in your household. You know, so often we, we, we fall for the lie that freedom and fulfillment is experienced when we're free to live as we wish and do our thing. That's, that, that's, the, that's the lie of the age. It's a lie inspired by Satan. True freedom, true fulfillment is only experienced when we surrender our lives to Jesus and when we give him that number one place, give him that supremacy. That, that might seem odd. 
that freedom comes from, from, from living in submission to somebody else. But actually it's true. True freedom only comes when Jesus is our Lord, not just in name but in every detail. The Colossians were being told by wrong teachers that, that Jesus wasn't enough and that true fulfillment, fullness, was found in things other than Jesus. Or that by adding things to their, their faith in Jesus, and we're constantly tempted to do the same, aren't we? It might be different issues for us, but instead of trusting solely in Jesus, we, we look to find fulfillment in relationships or in sex or in money or in our careers. It can be all kinds of different things. But true fulfillment is only found when we surrender ourselves and all of these things and put Jesus at the center. Who is Jesus? What does that mean for me? Jesus' identity and what he's done for us demands that we in turn give him everything, that we trust in him, that we give him the eternal place in our lives, the central place in our lives. We're not meant to do these things to try and earn God's favor, to, to, to get ourselves to heaven. We do these things as a response to what God has already done for us. So let's just take a few moments to bow our heads and close our eyes and, and, and just reflect for a few moments this morning on what we've said today, on who Jesus is, the wonderful, beautiful person of Jesus and what he's done for us in dying for us. What steps do you need to take this morning to respond appropriately to who Jesus is?